Hi, I'm Rob, and this is Dad Sofa, a podcast about the things that connect us. Whether it is a rained-off attempt at a trip to the pub, or string theory, a cycle to Cornwall, or a chat in the sea, we talk about the stuff of life, what makes us curious, the stuff that connects everything, the spaghetti of life. Come and join us. Get comfy. This is Dad Sofa. The size of our kids' toys have become smaller. When they were toddlers, I might spend a cold evening outside, constructing a climbing frame or trampoline in the pitch black, trying not to make any noise. A torch might help me see the instructions, but quickly they would become soggy or just blown away in a gust of wind. We have a bag of spare items that were never fitted to these toys, as the necessary imagination to complete construction often led to less materials being used than were provided by the company. Boxes with huge dimensions had to be wrapped with embarrassing and recyclable shiny paper in huge quantities and with an outer layer that was resistant to sellotape sticking to it. Hence, on Christmas Eve, our Christmas tree had, at its base, an apparently living sculpture of presents slowly moving in the dark as they opened themselves when the sellotape lost its contact with the folds of paper. The boxes of Lego gradually came down in size, but I remember one Christmas spending six hours putting together a large, multi-purpose truck for Tom, only for it to be smashed into bits as it slid off the table. A further two hours and I was semi-traumatised when the said truck slid to the floor again and blessed me with a further few hours away from our Christmas day. I actually superglued the thing together in the end, thinking that this would fix the issue once and for all. And no need to worry any more, lots of fun playing with the truck with all kinds of add-ons. But this has become one of the legendary bad dad things that traumatised my eldest son, because he could no longer take the thing apart and make it into something else. Now the toys are small, handheld things like an Apple Watch, or, as my youngest wants, some music mixing software. This will be the first year that we'll have given one of our kids a present which has no real-world physical presence. I'm trying to think of how downloading the software on Christmas morning can be made into any kind of wrapped-up gift-giving type of thing. One thing is for sure, he will spend hours in his bedroom poring over the new technology. My own bedroom as a child was cold. There was a big energy supply problem, and at one point I remember my parents talking about a three-day week. What was not to like about a three-day week? I was all for this government policy being introduced in schools. My parents patiently explained to me that they would only be paid for three days' work, and this would leave us worse off. It was during this time that my parents brought storage heaters and covered all of our windows with cling film to conserve energy. The heaters were filled with bricks and were heated overnight on the cheaper energy rate, and then, in the morning, this white-hot metal box could have the grill opened to release hot air. It was the most inefficient heater imaginable, and I remember shivering next to the thing, but burning my finger if I dared to touch it to see if the thing was actually working. It was during this energy crisis that sometimes the national electricity supply was turned off, and so I learned about power cuts and lighting candles so that we could see each other at night. My parents did lots to save money. They turned the garden into an allotment, and they had me double digging, ready for the potatoes to go in. They took up winemaking, taking me on their picking expeditions, which sometimes involved running with buckets in hand, overflowing with elderberries as an angry householder chased us away from their property. But they always managed to come up with Christmas presents. The realities of life were quickly steered back at bath time. Baths were usually something of a bore, because I could only have a few inches of valuable hot water. This was a real pain, because one of the toys I excitedly opened one Christmas was an action man deep-sea diving suit. You would put Action Man into the off-white suit, 
a nightmare to stretch the fabric of the neck so that his whole body would go in. And then a ring was attached to the neck, and then the deep-sea diving helmet was screwed onto that. He had heavy boots made of metal. There was a tube system on top of the helmet. The cool thing was that you could just blow into one of the tubes, and your deep-sea diving action man would plummet down into the depths of the murky water. We didn't have a pond, though, and lived nowhere near a river or any kind of deep water. And you would look like an idiot taking action man to the swimming pool. So my remedy for this was to use action man in the bath. Unfortunately, there was no parental sympathy to allow more water depth, and so my action man would lie sideways at a 30-degree angle to the bottom of the bath, in the few inches of water that was allowed. I would blow into the tube, and action man would just dip down to horizontal with a slight movement, the metal of his boots scratching against the steel surface of the bath. Not quite what I'd imagined in my mind's eye. But some toys were easy to use anywhere. A good example of this was clackers, two plastic balls attached to two strings, united by a single plastic hoop. You would grab the hoop and move your hand up and down to get the balls swinging away from each other. They would then come back together using gravity to make a clacking noise. And if you used all your skill and judgment, a term probably used in one of the 1970s adverts, you could clack the balls up and over the top and then back down making multiple clacks. The noise added to the excitement and then the screams came as fingers got caught in them, strings wrapped around fingers jamming the balls with force into them, or the balls would simply shatter, injuring everyone within a seven-foot radius. As a result, miracle clackers, as they were called, were short-lived, following news item, children injured by new toy. There was a certain post-war influence on advertising toys. A BBC clipped voice would wax lyrical about the new toy, with sometimes a slight patronising snigger about the young whippersnapper who the thing was marketed to. The same voices would then talk sternly about the terrible dangers as your fun was destroyed when the dangerous item had to be cleared from the shelves. In my case, an innocent enough toy, a stunt kite, became just that. There was a public information film about a child using a kite too near a power line. The screen was then obscured by a flash and an explosion with falling child as the strings of the kite became draped over the high-voltage power cables. There were similar films about kids being run over by trains and drowning in lakes, and then when the children became traumatised by watching them, they were felt to be too graphic following complaints. The remedy for this was Charlie the Cat. He would garble away. And then his kid owner would say something along the lines of Charlie's reminded me my mum says I shouldn't go off with people I don't know. Then the man went away. We went and told Mummy, and she said we'd been very good. I got an apple, and Charlie got something he likes. He says never go anywhere with men or ladies you don't know. We would watch these things, and then just get on with our own lives, as if these films were irrelevant to us. So going back to the stunt kite, this did nearly happen to my friend. We were on a campsite using the kite when suddenly the wind dropped and Paul made a funny bah-ha-ha noise, dropping the handles of the kite just as the strings dropped onto the power cables. We stood there thinking, what next? We couldn't touch the kite, and so we just stood there pensively. After about five minutes, the eerie thing happened. The strings broke and drifted down to the grass, confirming that our no-touch policy was a wise one. There was no better lesson on the ever-present latent dangers around. So indoor games could be a safer bet. Although as an only child, trying to engage your parents with a game for the whole family was not always that easy. 
If a game was being suggested for me to play with the adults, there was usually an educational element to it, so Scrabble was often my mum's suggestion. The word game, where you pick small tiles with letters on, out of a bag, and between each round you restore your seven tiles by picking up some more, depending on how many tiles you used in your last go. As a child, you could use your imagination, but spelling out a word like cubbardy was never going to get past the child police, so having tried to explain that this word might exist, the Oxford English Dictionary would be consulted, and the tiles would have to be removed back to my tile rack. I would end up sitting for what felt like hours looking at my rack, with tiles limited to four L's, two E's and a Q. The games could go on for a long time, and my lasting memory of my last game with my mother was her anger when my nudge of the game board, skewing tiles everywhere, made further play impossible. So it was back to my room where I would set up the Subutio set, a game I had to play myself as a kid. This was a football game, but the players, rather than standing on their own two feet, needed a way to kick the ball without falling over. The makers designed something which was rather bizarre to say the least. If you can imagine a life-sized Subutio football player, it would have its feet cemented into a huge dome of plastic, which at life-size would be about five feet in diameter, like the bottom of a sphere. The football was larger than the players, you would flick the players so that they would hit the ball and somehow entertain yourself as though this was real football. The pitch was a rolled-out green baize, probably an idea that came from the inventor's wartime card playing. In reality, the players were about 15 millimetres high and the ball about 3 centimetres, and so the players often just snapped from their base and thus would need stretchering off the pitch. As a result, intact sets of original Subutio footballers would probably fetch a princely sum these days. The spin-off was that other games were created, such as Subutio Rugby, but I think they drew the line at Subutio Swimming, which would have had a similar feel. Multiple people crammed together around a dish of water, flicking plastic swimmers along a micro version of an Olympic swimming pool. As I left my childhood behind, a game was launched that would probably have caused me chagrin as a child. Trivial Pursuits. A board game where you roll dice and answer questions on cards under six different subject headings. The idea is to land on a cheese question space and if you answer that subject's question correctly, you get a cheese for your round six-chamber cheese holder. It wasn't real cheese, but the plastic was triangular in shape and would fit into the round holder, so that at the end you would have six cheeses and could make your way to the centre of the board and answer a general knowledge question and be the envy of all your friends when you got it right. The thing is that the people who would suggest playing the game were those who had played it so much they knew a lot of the questions already so I knew my moment had come when one such person at university announced to us that he had this great game. He brought it back one Sunday night, and on the table was a green box for a few days, labelled Trivial Pursuits, of course. For the following week, the rest of us made up our own Trivial Pursuit. Whenever Andy was out, if we had any spare time, we would watch telly with the cards in hand and just had marathon question-asking sessions. In this way, we learned all the answers, and so when Andy proudly opened the box and told us how to play, his pride soon disappeared as our cheese trays quickly filled and he was left out of the game. He never mentioned trivial pursuits ever again. Getting out into real life was always much more fun and as my independence grew we would cycle out to Coat and Ford in our school clothes and jump in the river or explore building sites which of course were never fenced off in those days. But my eyes were really opened when on returning from a holiday in Canada I was one of the lucky people to do so with something I'd only ever been able to dream of before, a skateboard. Our estate was asphalt and hilly, so perfect for really fast downhill boarding, except the fact that such fast hill descents often had to be aborted as a car turned into the road. 
the driver panicking as one of us careened towards them at 30 miles per hour, sometimes doing handstands. For years my knees were either red raw or black encrusted from scabs developed through road rash. Happy days that informed my love of outdoor sport today. (laughs) 